This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, hi, everyone. <laughs> it's a, a different uh, view from being here rather than out there. Yes, we've had some uh, very wonderful speakers in this series where the rubber meets the road and people offering, teachers offering their perspectives on how to stay motivated and what the teachings have to offer and uh, how they apply to daily life. So I'll give you just a little bit of um, what uh, helps me in my journey. And um, I hope that we'll have uh, some time to kind of explore this a bit together. But I want to commend you for being here tonight. Uh, and those of you that have been coming to the series as well, there's a reason that you are coming to hear a talk, to practice with people. It suggests that you are, well, you're looking for something that will help you deal with life circumstances, the things that we encounter in life, <laughs> the unexpected things. So how do we handle challenging situations and challenging moments? That's a, that's a big one, isn't it? That's a big topic. So I, I have kind of two titles for what I wanted to present tonight. Um, one is uh, what helps us to stay motivated for doing a practice. And kind of a, a subtopic of that is the importance of knowing ourselves inside and out as part of that motivational factor. Have any of you ever had difficulty maintaining your meditation practice? <laughs> a few of us. I know I have. So in the groups that I lead and uh, various places that I occasionally teach, um, this is a, a quite a common response. People say they just have trouble, difficulty, staying with a practice. So if we were to plot our meditation practice, both for duration, quality of attention, frequency probably would kind of go up and down, right? It, it's not a linear thing. And so this is, this is a fairly common uh, occurrence for people that whether you're a beginning meditator or have years of experience, it's like uh, things kind of fluctuate. I know for me, when I'm traveling, um, I definitely have to adjust my expectations, my practice. So I, um, depending on what the travel situation is, if I'm visiting family, I might and often do get up quite early anyway. So I get up before everybody else. 
and I do I do my sit, I do my yoga, my stretching, um, and it kind of even if it's not my normal length, it's something. I pay attention to uh, when I'm taking a bite of food as much as I can, at least the first bite, you know, the one that really has the flavor in it. I pay attention to sounds. I, I watch my energy level. So there are a number of ways that I adapt my practice uh, depending on the circumstances. Another uh, thing that I find affects my practice is if I'm not feeling well. So certainly uh, in these situations that occur to all of us, um, there are still ways of holding true to our practice. It has to be an intention. It has to be something that you get some benefit from. Now, that's not to say that every sit and every practice time is going to be positive and wonderful. No, we know that. But am I able to stay with whatever it is that's happening for me? So what are some of the things that can help us stay with our practice, maintain it, or get back to it if we've kind of gotten off? Some people respond to the carrot approach. You know, you will have a peaceful mind and be calm and serene if you meditate. Well, (laughs) maybe some of the time. Another thing that uh, might help is recognizing that I have some unskillful habits and I'm feeling a little guilty about some things I said or did. And so maybe meditation will help kind of solve some of my guilt feelings. That's the guilt approach. And long term, that is not a reliable inspiration for doing a meditation practice. It's um, quite an effective remedy. I find that uh, there are three things that help me to keep my intention, that help me support my practice. And I find study and learning, having something that is inspiring about doing the practice, and having actual practice guidelines and understanding of how to meditate. So for study and learning, it's, I think it's, for me, I found that it's extremely important to have some place, a teacher, some reading, something where I can go to as a reliable source for learning what the teachings are about. They point to a perspective that leads me in the direction of wholesome states. This can move us out of our ordinary thinking. Let's face it, if we could accomplish with our minds and bodies the things that we hope to do, 
for one, being somewhat less reactive to the challenges that arise. If we could do it just by thinking ourselves through it, we wouldn't have any stress. So we need something that will help us shift our perspective. I find the Dhamma, the Noble Eightfold Path, is a very solid, reliable source for gaining that knowledge, to study it, to learn it. IMSB provides the kind of classes and teachings that can help with that. These teachings show us how to turn around our mind, things that hinder wholesomeness, and how to stay on course. The guidelines presented help us develop ethical conduct, wisdom, mental concentration, these factors that the Buddha realized that are essential for being awake to life as it is, not out there wandering, but right now. So what are some of the things that can be inspiring besides the teachings? Whatever it is that brought you to meditation or to a meditation group, to classes, to a sit, there's a deeper intention that drove drove you to that. We're looking for something something that will make us more at ease with ourselves, with loved ones, and in the world. So we listen to the teachings of the Dhamma. Those teachings tell us how important it is to have a steady meditation practice. If we want to let go of the things that cause us distress, cause us discontent. So we develop spiritual understanding. These help to free the mind of unwholesome states. This may sound like a very appealing motivational factor to help us do a practice, but like all experiences, our strong motivations one day seem to vanish the next. So what do we do when this occurs? Well, this brings us to the importance of practice guidelines. We need solid guidelines in order to actually do a meditation practice. My first exposure to an introduction to Vipassana meditation, Vipassana is insight meditation, clear seeing. It was in, it started in 1983. I took a year long program in transpersonal psychology and That program taught us, we started the year with a weekend Vipassana retreat with a Burmese nun teacher. 
they felt that the people that started the transpersonal psychology program felt that uh, meditation is such an important aspect of knowing ourselves, learning to accept ourselves, having an open mind, that it was a requirement for us to do a daily meditation practice. They gave us guidelines. And that year-long program launched me into doing mindfulness meditation. It turned my life around. So any one of these above three factors, namely study and learning, inspiration, and practice, can be a turning point for someone's meditation practice to enable it to become firm, dependable, and trustworthy. Have you noticed that when you meditate, sometimes you have what we might call a good meditation? You know, you feel... ah. You feel calm. You've been able to kind of let go of some of the stressors of the day. The body is really present with sitting. The breath is just doing what it does. The mind is not sorting through all of the things that you have to do or the problems that need to be solved or finished. You're just present. Well, we appreciate and enjoy meditation practices when they come like that. And how do you handle moments in your practice when something is disturbing? Whether it's an external sound the sound prompting a memory that was unpleasant, your own body hurting. The temperature not being agreeable, the chair not fitting your body style. the dinner you had not sitting quite right in the stomach. All of these things that can happen to any of us and do happen. How can meditation help that? Or can it? Can it? Can mindful awareness help us in moments of really unpleasantness Well, if you've been meditating for a while, I hope that you have found some answers on how mindful awareness can help those moments, those situations. First of all, I hope you noticed I said those moments. So going back to the teachings, one of the foundations of uh, Buddhist teachings is that everything is changing. 
Nothing is permanent. So even this unpleasant moment of feeling a little too warm, (laughs) every once in a while, I feel that coolness coming through. Oh, how nice. The harsh sound of the siren. It always kind of tugs a little, oh boy, I hope they're okay, and me. You know, and it kind of escalates the sound as it got closer, and and then it turned the corner. I was thinking as I was preparing my thoughts for this talk, thoughts remind me a little bit of a piece from my childhood. I grew up in Denver, and way back then, we could have firecrackers on for the 4th of July. I had an older brother, four years older. Oh, he was so good with doing all the, the things. And so one of the things that I felt most comfortable doing was having somebody light the sparkler. And then I would wave it around. I thought that was so much fun. And it occurred to me that thoughts are kind of like sparklers. You know, they've been lit. They have some kind of a little fuse. Something sparks them. They they kind of, (laughs) for a while, you know, oh, look at me, look at me. I am good. I am, oh, this is a terrible problem. Oh, pay attention, pay attention. (laughs) And then it fizzles. Yeah. So whatever we put our attention on is what is going to become ingrained. So the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, give us many reasons for practicing meditation. One is called wisdom, to understand the nature of suffering or discontent and how to end it. Because suffering is common to all beings the teachings have universal implications. Understanding these teachings can bring us to some deep reflective questions. Am I discontented at this moment? Are you discontented right now in any way? Can you sit for three breaths with that reality, with that discontent, just as it is? not making yourself bad for having it, not making the discontented element bad, 
How is it showing up? When did it start? Did it start a moment ago? Did it start at work today? Did it start when you woke up this morning? These are not easy questions. Am I discontented? Buddha gave us the tools not only for skillfully dealing with our suffering or our discontent, but how to wake up in the moment. I want to read you just a little piece of Karen Armstrong's description of the Buddha. This is her book called Buddha. We read of crowds of ascetics pouring into the Buddhist settlements. Delegations would come to ask the Buddha a question. Noblemen and merchants would arrive. Mounted on elephants and the gilded youth of a district would ride out en masse to invite the Buddha to dinner. In the midst of all this excitement and activity was the quiet, controlled figure of the Buddha, the new awakened man. He remains opaque and unknowable to those of us who are incapable of his complete self-abandonment because after his enlightenment, he became impersonal, though never unkind or cold. There is no sign of struggle or effort on his part. As he exclaimed on the night of his enlightenment, he had completed everything that he had to do. He was the Tagathita, the man who had disappeared. He had no personal attachments and had no aggressively doctrinaire opinions. Wow. In the Pali text, he is often compared to non-human beings, not because he was considered unnatural, but because people did not know how to classify him. One day, a Brahmin found the Buddha sitting under a tree, composed and contemplative. His faculties were at rest, his mind was still, and everything about him breathed self-discipline and serenity. This sight filled the Brahmin with awe. Relative to establishing a meditation practice, one of the first things we have to do is to slow down. (laughs) So mindfulness is the principal mode of practice in this tradition that we are practicing. Knowing how to be with momentary experience as it is And to rest there, to be receptive to it, to let this moment be okay, 
even if I'm a little too warm. With mindfulness, we must slow down enough to be able to know what is happening in the body and the mind. This step of development in meditation practice is essential and often not so easy for people. So as we continue our practice, we gain insights at this stage of practice. An insight I might get is seeing how my normal pace is rushing from one thing to another and how difficult it is to just slow down, to be still for a few minutes, to rest there, to rest in this moment. You all did it earlier this evening. I wasn't aware of anybody getting up and running out or walking out. It's not so easy to sit still and to be with yourself with whatever it is that's arising for you. Part of it is physical physicality of the body, the unpleasantness, the occasional pleasantness, the mental aspect, ooh, the thoughts the sparklers. I found it can take years to gain a deeper understanding of what it means to rest in mindful awareness with whatever I'm experiencing, whether it's good, bad, or whether I'm indifferent to it. So this brings me to some points I want to say about knowing ourselves deeply and clearly, inside and out. What I'm referring to when I speak about knowing ourselves inside and out is being aware of the physical, mental, and emotional responses we have to ordinary events. This practice is worthless unless we can make it real in our lives day to day. And it can be very useful very practical, as a way of being. Knowing myself internally means knowing the landscape, the environment. Some people call it the internal mood or attitude. Do you know? What is, what is your internal attitude right now? Your mood And again, whatever it is, not making yourself right or wrong, but recognizing what is so for me right now. This is how we come to know ourselves internally. For many years, I did retreats with a teacher who gave suggested mindfulness practices that helped me to distinguish between gross and subtle physical states. So physically knowing a gross state would be, you know, a a, a strong discomfort in the back because the chair doesn't fit just right or feeling the temperature or subtle states. That's 
feeling thy, the minutia when craving in the mind arises, the little, the little gurgles and bumps deep inside the body. This has helped me understand and deal with emotional and mental states as well. When we come to know ourselves outwardly, it's how am I relating to the world? How am I relating to others? Achan Brahm, his little book, The Art of Disappearing. As your mindfulness grows stronger, it's easier to see the bad habits and hindrances that usually lead you by the nose. You clearly see the stupid states of mind that you sometimes get into, like getting angry at other people. When you're not mindful, these habits keep coming up. But when you are mindful, you can see them as they happen. You can see these states arising and their consequences. Ooh, that's an important one. Knowing the consequences, watching what happens on that person's face when I say something critical. You can see what they do to you and to others. When you see these habits and know that they cause pain and suffering, you become motivated to stop them, hopefully. <laughs> That's, I added that. Now, not only do you see the problems, but you also see the solution, namely restraint. Mindfulness makes restraint possible. Ooh, did you cringe at that word? We don't like to be told that we have to restrain ourselves. Perhaps when we are evolved enough with our practice, restraint is no longer an effort. Maybe it just... Feeling natural compassion, maybe that comes forward. I hope so. I hope so. So there are many classrooms in our lives for us to learn about ourselves, to pay attention, pay attention to when the mind gravitates toward wanting to be right, wanting to make somebody else wrong. I have two current classrooms, not the only ones by any means, but I swim at the Palo Alto YMCA, and I go at the hours that tend to be older people, you know, so I, I like to do my own thing. And so people get very, including me, very territorial in the pool. Even even if we're not doing the customary lap swimming thing. Uh, you know, some of us go back and forth in a somewhat straight line. And then there's the ladies that like to chat and bob around. Bob around. <laughs> 
you know, and it's like they don't notice that you're <laughs> that they're drifting into your space. So let me I I get to watch my mind, you know. <laughs> Doesn't she see this is my lane? It's not there's no lane. No, there's no lane. Okay, so that's one classroom for me of learning. Okay, are we clear what I'm referring to about classroom? Where I learn my lessons, okay? Another one that is really very present for me is aging. Oh, aging. I I really get I have no control over what this body is going to do next. <laughs> Boy, do I love the five remembrances. <laughs> So, Buddhism has very deep psychology to it. If we avail ourselves of the teachings, if we pay attention to the logic that it is providing in the teachings, if we put it into practice, anything that You've heard this before. Anything that is really worth having is worth some effort. Doing a meditation practice requires effort. The rewards are not always apparent. Sometimes it takes a long time. Has anybody else found that to be so? Oh, good. Yes. So, look around you. Your presence here is not just for you. Your presence here this evening is for every other person sitting here. In addition to yourself, we're not excluding you. You are the one that made the effort to get here tonight after who knows what kind of day or week or year or life you've had. (laughs) So you came. You cared about yourself, and maybe your motivation wasn't exactly, well, I'm going to go to help support others in their practice tonight. But you did it, whether it was conscious or not. So we need the teachings, we need teachers, but we need to do the work ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to remember and assess what is it that fuels the fire in me I'm, of course, referring to moments of anger outburst, not the natural fire that warms our body. And what can help to extinguish that fire? At least I find that emotional flavor of anger 
seems to be the most difficult and the most common for people to work with. It's not the only one. There are many. When you have small victories in your understanding, in your meditation practice, know that those are important. You're cultivating new habits and wholesome states of mind that will serve you deeply. So not to overlook when you have a moment of peace and calm, enjoy it. Take it in. It wasn't a fantasy. Nobody bestowed it upon you. You felt it directly. The real effort and benefits of developing mindful awareness is up to me. Nobody can do it for us. I played around with a chart. (laughs) This is by no means exhaustive or... It's just... It's just what my mind made up. So I know you can't all see this, and I didn't want to do the whole PowerPoint thing. The inner is the abode of wisdom. Outer is the abode of compassion. When I am able to give expression to a wholesome state from my abode of wisdom inside something happens I have a response the outer expression in my abode of compassion, becomes some kind of action. Because I am not reacting to whatever it is that has come, I can remain calm and reflective on my inner abode of wisdom. That enables me to become expressive in the abode of compassion. So, whatever came, a phone call from my friend that she got a diagnosis. This is a process. So, All I'm really trying to point out here in my <laughs> my little uh, chart is there is always a relationship between inner and outer. 
things happen to us in the world, and even internally, we have some kind of response to it. What I give expression to outwardly, on a good day, it's coming from my abode of compassion, or maybe I should say, in a good moment. (laughs) So that's just something I played around with. So if the Buddha was to walk through the, the door right now, walk into our center, our sangha, what would you do, say, ask? Learning to listen to and trust your heart. That's kind of the bottom line. I want to read a poem to end. It's called Sangha by someone um, by the name of Dana Falls. I don't know this person. Came to me through one of my Buddhist sites. Sangha. Is there anybody here who does not know what Sangha means? Please don't. Thank you. It's the collection of practitioners. Initially, it meant the monks and nuns that practiced with the Buddha. We've expanded on that now, and we like to think of ourselves as Sangha, even though we're not monastics. We come together and we support each other, as I referred to earlier. So Sangha are noble friends, are practitioners on the path. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. May we stand side by side. Let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders each for the other that the path of transformation passes through the flame. To take one step is courageous, to stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown and facing yet another fear. That is nothing short of grace. Let's be quiet for one moment. May all beings, known and unknown, be free of harm and ill will. 
May all beings have physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being free of distress, pain, and suffering. May all beings know peace of mind. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.